come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. Welcome to episode number 71 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, I am your tour guide here of David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And on this episode is going to be, as I was saying on the previous one, my first Odyssey Through the Ones episode, as I have featured reviews for the movie that was actually supposed to be released last year, but is now getting its full release here in 2021 of Psycho Gorman. And I decided to pair that up with the 1931 version of the movie Svengali, as those will be, you know, the two movies that are paired up with technically release dates in, you know, years that end in one. And then also included on here is the some of the last films I've doing for the podcast under the Sarah Summer Challenge series from last year before that kind of starts up again. And those movies are Amir and Jennifer's Body that I have many reviews for, as well as I finally got back into, you know, moving through the alphabet as I am now watching Dagon as well. This is one I've had on a list to see for quite some time, so I'm glad I could finally tick that one off. I think that's really all I had to kind of get you updated with on this episode. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm not going to waste any of your time here. I'm going to get you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews, and I hope you enjoy coming on this journey with me. My first mini-review of this week is going to be Amir from 2009. This is written and directed by 
Helena Katat and Bruno Forzani. This stars Cassandra Forat, Charlotte Eugenia Goboid, and Marie Bowes. This is a horror thriller that is a co-production between France and Belgium. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here as a young girl, Anna, was a rebellious child. She was also tormented by images of death and shadowy, ominous figures in black. Now, as an adult, she is once again tormented by a shadowy, otherworldly form. Now, this is a film that I had never heard of until I started working my way through the Fangoria Top 300 horror movie issue. That first viewing, I thought it was okay, but it end up coming up on a second viewing and then this movie was really lost on me until i started watching giallo films realizing that this is paying homage to them and i have now given it a third viewing as part of the podcast under the stairs summer challenge series for the 2000s now as i was saying here this is one that i didn't fully grasp until i started you know watching Gialli. this is really paying homage to the subgenre from you know this one being from france and belgium but the subgenre is actually from italy it does so well in some categories for what it does, but it also falls short, in my opinion, for others. Now, to start with the positives, I love the look of this movie. Chatet and Forzani, as the co-writers and directors, definitely nailed the aesthetic. Their use of different colored light really does remind me of things that Mario Bava and Dario Argento did in the past. We really get to see this with the young and adult versions of Anna, in my opinion, and this movie looks beautiful thanks to that. There's also this creepy and haunting atmosphere, which is partly aided by the house this mostly takes place in. Initially, I thought this was the house from Deep Red, but the more I saw it, the more I realized that it wasn't. But there are definitely some similar aspects with the architecture. Now, going along with the atmosphere of the movie, I think I should next go to the soundtrack. The selections are definitely Jalo-esque, and when I was watching the credits, I can see why. There are some that are taken from legit Jalo films, like The Case of the Scorpion's Tail, What Have They Done to Your Daughters, and Killer Cop. Ennio Morricone also seems to have done a song specifically for this movie as well. I've not seen some of these other ones, but I've heard you know some of the selections before, and I'm a big fan of this type of music, so it really fits the vibe the movie is going for. Another thing this movie does is it nails that we get a black-gloved killer during the adult stage of this movie. They're also carrying a straight razor. The taxi driver also has a switchblade here as well. Now, this unfortunately is where the comparisons end into paying homage to Giallo. Now, taking this into some negatives here, this movie is really kind of lacking a story for me. It is a character study of Anna, which I will delve into here in a minute, but we aren't really getting any type of investigation here like we would in a Gialli. This is taking the look and feel, but lacking the story to become, in my opinion, actually like a neo-Giallo film. For me, this does hurt the movie, if I'm going to be honest. Now, that's not to say I didn't enjoy what this movie was taking us. It is an interesting in that we are getting this character study. We are establishing that when Anna was a girl, she has some vivid fantasies. This isn't uncommon, but what she does to her grandfather's hand is traumatic. Having Grazella chase her around as well, and especially because her mother is calling this woman a witch, Anna is to fault here a bit for what she does. That's not to say that everything that we are seeing is real. This young girl is a voyeur as she's peeking through a lot of keyholes and this does backfire when you know she comes in and sees her parents making love. Now when Anna was a teen, I think this movie is really showing us that despite how developed her body is, she is still a child. The voyeurism is taken from her a bit here as we see men looking at her throughout this and I guess you can even consider this you know the male gaze as well. There's this boy who has a soccer ball who is aroused by her. There's a shop owner who treats her like a child as he's trying to shove a candy in her mouth. And it's really the bikers that are watching her as she strolls by. The wind is blowing at her dress and she really doesn't stop it as much as she should. Not that she necessarily needs to because she doesn't really understand the implications here. But, you know, her body is more formed than it should be. And this kind of goes to that adage where people are telling women that they shouldn't be wearing certain things so they do not get raped. Where these men are looking at her and she doesn't necessarily realize what she's doing. And I don't think she should have to change just because of these men being around. Now, to end my thoughts on the story, though, is with Anna as an adult. I think we're seeing a culmination of what we got with the other two periods of her life. The movie does well in making her experience on the train seem sexual. She then has to deal with this taxi driver trying to look up her dress. The isolation of the house and the traumas culminate in what happens in the end here. Now, since I've already delved into the character, I should comment next on the acting. There is the portrayal from Cassandra Forret 
who is the child version. She does a solid job in showing fear and establishing that this character has some issues. Then Gyubud, I think that's how you say that. Probably not. I apologize. Is probably my least favorite of the trio of taking on Anna. I don't think she does anything bad, but she just plays it so stoic. And then I think that Boz does a solid job, though, incorporating elements of the child version with the look of the teenager. Now, she does have some interesting reactions to things as well. Aside from that, I think that Bianca Maria Diamato, Harry Clevin, along with Francois Cognard, and the rest of the cast really push this character of Anna to where she needs to end up. And the last thing I want to go over would be effects. We really don't get a lot of them, and it really isn't that type of movie. I think the makeup to make the grandfather look dead was good. He looks really creepy, and I think part of this is that it is a real person playing it, so we kind of see some slight movements, and then this kind of plays in with the ending as well. The best effect, though, comes in the adult story. We get a brutal-looking attack with a straight razor. My only gripe here is that there wasn't enough blood for the realism. With my take on the attack, though, I can be forgiving there because I do think there is something going on with it. So in conclusion, I think this movie looks great. It does well in paying homage to Gialli films with that. And then it is lacking a story, though, to bring everything together for me. I think the character study of Anna is solid. All three actresses work well in establishing her and to where she ends up. I think the rest of the cast does well in pushing her there. The effects we get work along with the soundtrack to the movie. This is a bit boring, though, if I'm going to be honest, and it's lacking the mystery that this subgenre needs. With that said, though, I think this is still an above-average movie for what I do like. If you love the aesthetic of Jolly, I think you can appreciate this movie. I can't recommend this, though, if you're looking for a strong story, though. So my rating here for Amir is going to be a 7 out of 10 once again. And for my second mini-review, I have Jennifer's Body from 2009. This is a film that is directed by Karen Kusama. It was written by Diablo Cody. It stars Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, and Adam Brody. This is a comedy horror film that is from the United States, as well as a co-production with Canada. This is sitting on a 5.2 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being... A newly possessed high school cheerleader turns into a succubus that specializes in killing her male classmates. Can her best friend put an end to the horror? Now, this is a film that I actually saw in theaters while I was in college. I'll admit, the major reason that I went to see this was because I had a crush on Megan Fox. I did enjoy the movie and even picked it up on DVD sometime later. This is one that I periodically will come back and have seen just a couple times with the most recent viewing here as part of the Summer Challenge series over on the podcast Under the Stairs as one of the last movies to finally you know, finish that list. Now, I will say I'm personally impressed with this film. The last viewing was with Jamie as part of a selling point is that I know she likes the movie Juno and I bring this up as the writer of this movie of Cody also wrote that movie. What I found interesting is that the director here being Kusama is, I really like one of her movies after this of The Invitation. Now to delve into this movie here, what impresses me is the take on high school that we're getting. Fox looks a little bit old to be in high school, but I can overlook that as I love the slasher films and that is, you know, a kind of trope we get there. Cody and Kusama do a great job at embodying that high school is rough. I like that they're breaking the mold by having Needy, who is Seafred, as well as Jennifer, you know, being Fox being best friends. The problem though is that their friendship is toxic for Needy. Jennifer bosses her around and she's able to. Heck, her nickname being Needy makes a lot of sense. And then her boyfriend of Chip is there to build up Needy, but Jennifer really does rule this place. I think the movie has an interesting look at what happens to Jennifer as well. She's sleeping with a local police officer by the name of Roman Duda, who is portrayed by Chris Pratt. I'm assuming this started when he was still in high school and just, you know, because he never left the area. Jennifer is gorgeous, let me establish that, but she's also small town. There is no one here to rival her, and then Nikolai, who's portrayed by Adam Brody, is, you know, digging what she's doing, but we see what happens when she goes off with him. There is definitely a commentary here on rape without actually going through with the act. That is unless you consider the symbolism of her being sacrificed with a knife, which is phallic-shaped, plus she completely loses what innocence she still had when she comes back from this ritual. Now, speaking of that ritual, I like the premise of how Jennifer becomes a succubus that she does. Low Shoulder, which is the band that Brody is in, is struggling as an indie band. Their plan is to sacrifice a virgin, make a pact with the devil to become famous, and that is what they do. The problem is that Jennifer isn't a virgin. 
This causes her to become a succubus. I think this is genius as, you know, she's already good looking. Succubi are described this way, and I think that works. And she can even lure in men as victims, including, you know, Colin Gray, who is portrayed by Kyle Gallner. There is Jonas Kozel, who's portrayed by Josh Emerson, and even Chip to an extent. It is done in a natural way and very subtle, in my opinion. Now, that's all I want to delve into for the story, so I'll shift over to the acting. I think that Fox and Seafront are great as our leads. Fox just has a look that is needed for this role and was really kind of born to play this. Her acting isn't great, but I think a part of my gripe, though, is with the writing. Cody tends to write characters that are unbelievable in their dialogue as it's too quirky. They do well with making Seafred look mousy despite how attractive she is. Her portrayal as Needy is probably the best performance in the movie. Simmons is solid in support along with, you know, Brody, Pratt, Gallner, and even J.K. Simmons and Amy Sedaris in their cameos. There really isn't a bad performance, though, and the acting just kind of works overall. Next would be the effects, which I think for the most part they're good. The blood has a good color. We don't really need to get to see a lot of the attack scenes, which is fine. The aftermath, what we get to see, though, works well enough for me. There is some CGI that we get in this movie that it isn't great, but it really isn't enough to ruin the movie. Now, I do want to give credit here to the cinematography. I can tell now that we have a woman director. It is tastefully done to show how attractive Jennifer is without necessarily needing to show too much skin. There are some strategic things done with the angles and shots for sure. And the last thing I want to go over would be the soundtrack. I actually dig the song by Low Shoulder. It has a sound that really fits the era this movie was made. Aside from that, we get some music from like Fall Out Boy and other groups that also fit the time. It isn't great, but I think the soundtrack really does fit for what was needed. So in conclusion here, I think this is a solid movie. I'm not going to say that it's great by any stretch. There is an interesting premise here with this band wanting to make it big and messing up Jennifer's life, causing her to become a demon for what they do. It showcases how high school can be tough and how beautiful women can get their way. The acting is solid and most of the effects as well as the soundtrack work. Some of the dialogue doesn't necessarily work for me as it doesn't necessarily feel natural, which is an issue for sure. Overall, I'd say this is an above average movie in my opinion. It can be rough if you weren't in high school or college when it came out, but I think the creature idea still makes it work. So my rating here for Jennifer's Body is a 7 out of 10. And then for my last mini review of this week is going to be Dagon from 2001. This was directed by Stuart Gordon, RIP. This was written by Dennis Payol, who did the screenplay. And then it comes from adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft short stories of Dagon and the Shadow over Innsmouth. Now this stars Ezra Godden, Francisco Rabul, and Raquel Morano. This is a fantasy horror mystery film that is actually from spain it is currently sitting on a 6.3 on imdb and a 3.1 on letterboxd with our synopsis here as a boating accident runs a young man and woman ashore in a decrepit spanish fishing village which they discover is in the grips of an ancient sea god and its monstrous half-human offspring now this movie that i actually have gotten confused I remember seeing the cover of the VHS for this movie in my local movie store to like rent, but I always thought this movie was much older than what it was. The cover always stuck with me, and it's been a blind spot viewing for me, and I really wanted to see it even more that I learned that Stuart Gordon was the director here, and that it was adapted from the works of Lovecraft, who I really started to read more prior to actually seeing this movie here. Now coming into this, I was actually curious as how this was going to be done to extend the story since the source material for Dagon is really only a few pages. As I was watching this movie, that was when I realized they were combining it with another Lovecraft story over the shadow over Innsmouth, which is a majority of what we're getting here. Instead of setting it in New England though, they shifted it over to a village in Spain, and this change really kind of works for me. That is where I'm going to end up starting here, where I'm a big fan of what we have this you know setting for the movie. Through the dialogue, we learn that our main character of Paul is actually of Spanish descent. For some reason, his mother, though, didn't want him to learn the language. This makes an interesting dynamic that Paul cannot speak the language of the area, making him, you know, a fish out of water, you know, pun intended. Barbara does speak the language, so the stretch where she is missing, he is lost. It adds a feeling of unease not being able to converse or understand those around you. Now going along with this, I really like that the movie decided to use the shadow over Innsmouth as the basis of the story. There is actually a structure there and seems more adaptable to the screen like we get here. Much like the story, when Paul looks out of a window of his hotel room and sees the villagers kind of milling about is crazy and quite creepy. It goes even farther when they do what they do from there and this gets the anxiety going for me. 
There's also a great part of this that Paul is being called there and he doesn't necessarily know why through these nightmares. What I do want to go into next though would be the effects. We get some practical ones in this movie, so for the most part, those are fine. There is some of the fish stuff that just looks a bit cheesy, if I'm going to be honest. The blood does look good, and there's even a scene where we get to see someone being skinned that worked for me. I would say that I'm fine with the cinematography as well. The big issue, though, is the CGI. It isn't very good and doesn't hold up. There's a moment where we get to see the creature of Dagon, which I did like that they tried it, but this is about the extent of my thoughts here for the effects. Now, the last thing I kind of want to go into would be the acting. Coming to this movie, I thought that the director of Gordon here was teaming up again with Combs. I was shocked that it was actually this actor of Ezra Godden. I don't think it's an accident that they have him made up to look like him with the glasses and everything. I thought his performance was solid, even though I think he's trying to play Combs in this movie. Francisco Rabul is solid as Ezekiel. He's really there to fill in the backstory as this drunken character from the story. It fits for me, though. And then Marino is quite attractive and i thought she works well as this character of barbara and then we also have the person of gomez who portrays uxia we do get to see both of them as topless which they're good looking and if you're looking for that in the movie you do get that and i would say that the rest of the cast kind of just fits for what is needed to round this out so in conclusion here i think this is a solid adaptation that is coming from you know two lovecraft stories in reality, they're really adapting the shadow over Innsmouth and just taking the name of Dagon, which I do think is a better move. That doesn't bother me, though, either. I think that the setting of this movie really works. Having the character of Paul not be able to speak the language adds an element of horror for me. The acting also works across the board. The effects are kind of hit or miss, though. I still like what they're doing and would say that this is an above-average movie, aside from my slight issues here and there. If you like Lovecraft, I would definitely say that this one works and worth a viewing. So my rating here for Dagon is a 7 out of 10 as well. So what I'm going to do, though, this is all I have for my mini-reviews, is I'm going to get you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Many moons ago, a nameless evil was imprisoned in a place far beyond reach. Hurry up! If he were ever to be released, it would spell certain doom for all existence. Is that fear I smell? Your planet will be torn to pieces, and I will Mimi, treat your fuck. angry screams as I rip. Is this yours? Um, B? Uh, oh my god. The gem of Paraxodike. Whoever wields it is able to command me. Go over there. Uh, and wait for us to come back in the morning. You will suffer an eternity for this. Bye! Mom? Dad? I want you to meet Psycho Gorman, or PG for short. I will bathe in your blood. Don't worry. Be worried. Slow down! He's gonna kill everybody, not unless I tell him to. What did you three maniacs get up to? Um, this is getting a little weird. This sick game must come to an end. She will enslave the galaxy into endless servitude. Kill him! Cool. He will not stop the ultimate evil has awoken. There's a new god in town. And his name? Psycho Gorman. Nice meeting you. It would be nicer if you were dead. Alright, bye. And for my first feature review on this episode is going to be Psycho Gorman from 2020. This is written and directed by Steven Kostansky. This stars Nita Josie Hanna, Owen Myrie, Matthew Nineber, along with Steven Valajos, Adam Brooks, Alexis Karahansi, Christian McCullough, Anna Tierney, Roxanne Latoya Plummer, Alex Chung, Scout Flint, Robert Homer, Connor Sweeney, Matthew Kennedy, and Rick Amsbury. This is a comedy horror sci-fi film that is from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.2 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with our synopsis here being, after unearthing a gem that controls an evil monster looking to destroy the universe, a young girl and her brother use it to make him do their bidding. 
Now, this is a movie that I heard a lot of buzz about, and some people you know, got to see it in 2020 as part of the festival circuit, while others were just pretty high on it as it got a wide release here in 2021. I knew this is one that I was going to have to check out from everything that I was hearing about. And then before I jump into the movie here, let me go ahead and do some featured notes really quick. Our director here of Kostansky, which if I am pronouncing that wrong, I do apologize, has 14 films that he's directed. Of those, eight are in genre. There are two shorts in there as well. Now, his first was in 2011 with Father's Day, and then he followed that up the same year with Manborg, which I've never seen either of those, but I have heard of the latter one. He also did W is for Wish and ABCs of Death 2. Now, the first one that I've seen from him is The Void, which I really did enjoy. He also directed Leprechaun Returns, which I haven't seen yet, but have heard good things. And then, you know, this movie here is his most recent. As a writer, he has eight credits, with five of them being in genre. It looks like he wrote everything that I've laid out, aside from his segment in ABCs of Death 2 and Leprechaun Returns. And I should also point out that he wrote and directed Biocop, which was a short film. Now, this is the feature film debut for the actress of Hana, and then her brother in the movie of Myri. This is his only feature film, as he was in the short of The Shade. And then Ninabar is the same as that he's been in two movies. The other one is one that looks like he directed of called Transference, which looks to be a sci-fi film as well. Now, he starts this movie off with a bit of text. There is a planet of Gygax where a ruthless and powerful being was killing everyone and everything that stood in his way. He was defeated and then imprisoned with this gem that gave him his power. The movie then switches us over to Earth. We have these two kids that are playing this odd game called Crazy Ball. The girl is Mimi, who is portrayed by Hannah, and then her brother is Luke, portrayed by Myri. Looking at the size, I would assume he's older, but she is a much bigger personality than him, to the point where she is a bully. She's also really good at this game that they've created. She wins, and he has to dig a hole because of it. In doing so, they end up finding this stone with a gem on it, Mimi hits a button on it in a weird configuration, like she has to hit these multiples of buttons here, and then the gem ends up lighting up and she takes it. The two kids live with their parents of Greg, who is betrayed by Brooks, and Susan, who is betrayed by Hansi. This is interesting because the children are mimicking them to an extent. Susan is controlling, but she has more responsibilities around the house. Greg is lazy and gets upset when he's asked to do even the slightest thing. By taking this jewel, they've awoken what it is being held by. The entity doesn't seem to have a name, but we see that there's a council of aliens that are led by Pandora, who is portrayed by McCullough, and then is voiced by Tierney. This is a race known as Templars that Pandora is from. Now, she is the one that defeated this great evil, and from this group, her race is the most powerful. They know that the evil is once again awake, so Pandora disguises herself as a human that she has killed in front of us, and this human is portrayed by plumber and then heads to earth to once again imprison this entity now back on earth we see that there is this evil that she is coming to stop the body is portrayed by ninabar and it's voiced by Velahos. he goes to an old shoe factory where he kills a bunch of people that are in there and they as they stand in his way this is done in a violent fashion and we also see that he has power that hasn't been seen on earth before this creature though needs the jewel back when he returns to the house of mimi and luke we realize something interesting here Mimi has the gem, and he cannot kill her. He also has to do what she says. Now, they tried to hide this entity by naming it Psycho Gorman in the process. Now, they're trying to use the old shoe factory because her parents haven't seen it yet. Or they did try to attack it, but they don't want them to kind of do anything with it. Now, Mimi has a lot of fun with her new friend. While Luke and their parents seem to enjoy it most of the time, because we do get this weird montage of her singing a song and them trying to do different things like dressing him up and whatnot. But there is an interesting change that comes over PG as we get to know you know, him as well as her family and then vice versa. This isn't long to live though as PG calls his minions to help free him from Mimi and he also has to worry about Pandora as she tries to lock him back into his internal prison. So that's where I'm going to leave my recap of the movie. Is that get you up to speed with what this is trying to do and kind of the gist of the story? What I did leave out is that this is part comedy. This is also derived from a few different things that I picked up on. And this isn't to say that we're getting, you know, just comedy here. We're also having these sci-fi and horror elements going along with it for sure. Now, I want to start with the backstory of Psycho Gorman. I love the care they placed into him, you know, along with the Council of Aliens and his enemies. What makes it even better for me, though, is the depth that they put here. Psycho Gorman is a creature that I could see in the same veins as, like, Voldemort. 
He is the greatest evil that this universe has ever seen. What I find interesting, though, is that the more we learn about PG, the more that his creature is of circumstance. He was born on a slave planet of Gygax that was used to be great warriors from what I'm getting. And I'm also getting the vibe that the Templars conquered them and this is their fate to be slaves. PG finds this gem that gives him great power. Due to this, he becomes powerful enough to break his chains and get his revenge. I'm also taking it that we're getting the idea here that he got too powerful too quickly. So the conscience to do good wasn't there. And so he's just kind of laying waste to everything that he can. I do find it interesting as well that Pandora and her race are Templars. This seems like that was done on purpose. The Knights Templar being a group of knights that were supposed to be religious based, so it would do some pretty horrific things. I'm taking it that the Space Templars were the same. I like the idea that PG has a change in him, and what we learn, kind of his backstory and where he ends up here, is that he's an anti-hero, and then I guess in the inverse that would make Pandora be an anti-villain. So both sides are corrupt and have layers to them, which I think is really kind of good for this movie. And then next, I would like to go, you know, bring this all to Earth here while looking at the character of Mimi. Before seeing this movie, I'd heard some people discussing her. I would say she's probably like 12 or 13. There is a big personality there, and as I said earlier, I think that she's older than Luke, and it is a good thing as she was raised with Susan and somewhat of Greg because she is leaning towards being a sociopath or even a psychopath. She isn't that much different from PG. Without the right influences, she could end up down this dark path for sure, and this is even something that PG uses to turn Luke against her as leverage. Now what I think I want to go to next would be the comedy of this movie. I've seen a few people who love it. I'll be honest though, some of it works for me, but some of it doesn't. This is really one that I wish I could see in the theater with a group of people as I think it would play better. Heck, I think this would even be a good one to watch with a group at someone's house who are into movies like this. Because I did recommend it to Jamie. She declined to watch it, which I can't blame her. I don't necessarily know if she would enjoy this. So watching it alone on my couch, the comedy didn't really work for me. I don't hate it though, as there is a more whimsical look that I wasn't necessarily the big fan of, but there were a few times where it did make me literally laugh out loud, so I will say that. Now, what I did like though were the practical effects. This movie made PG to look quite creepy. Heck, I'll even say is that I love the effects on all of the aliens for the most part. There is something that happens to this child though on Earth of Alistair, who is portrayed by Flint, that just didn't work for me. It's played for laughs, and I think it just misses a mark for, like, for my kind of humor. The blood and gore that we get, though, was good, and most of the CGI works here as well. I just had some slight issues with some of the CGI. I was impressed, though, that they did make this movie gory without going too far over the top, though, to lose me. And the next thing I want to go to would be the acting. The person that impressed me the most would be Hannah here. Her portrayal as Mimi with how young she is is great. The only thing that really concerns me is that she could really just be this spoiled brat of a person in real life, and that is terrifying, especially because of how dark this character tries to go in the movie. Myri was solid as the more timid brother. I think that Ninabar and McCullough have a great look size-wise for their characters. Vlahos does a good job of the voice of PG, and the same could be said for Tyranny as the voice of Pandora. The other people I want to give credit to would be the parents being portrayed by Brooks and Hansi. They're minor characters in the grand scheme, but I think at times they steal the show with their interactions. Those performances with the rest of the cast do round this out for what was needed in my opinion. So I just have a little bit of trivia here that I wanted to share before I close this out. Psycho Gorman is from the planet of Gygax, which is most likely a reference to one of the creators of Dungeons and Dragons and Gary Gygax. The title character of Gorman is costumed to look like Dr. Alan Grant from the original Jurassic Park about halfway through the movie. I did pick up on that. The Zombie Cop is a reference to the director's 2012 short film of Biocop. And then McCullough, who plays Pandora, also doubles as Alistair's mother as well. So in conclusion here, I thought this movie was a lot of fun. As someone who gets sucked into the story, I love the time and care that they put into the backstories of these aliens, along with the human characters as well. There are some really good effects that bring this to life, especially with how brutal this movie gets. I would also say that the acting was good across the board, giving credit to Hannah, taking on the character of Mimi. If I do have any issues here, the comedy doesn't work for me as much as I would have liked, and there were some issues with the effects. Aside from that, I do think they do some fun stuff with the soundtrack. So for me, this is a good movie, and another one that I would like to see before the year ends to see where I fall with this one. So my rating here for Psycho Gorman is going to be an 8 out of 10. Now I'm not going to do a spoiler section, as I don't really feel like there's a that much more I could kind of delve into. I guess I could point out little references here and there. Don't really want to do that though. 
And I would definitely say to give this one a recommendation, especially if you like gorier comedies, especially ones with you know horror elements like that and everything. But what I'm going to go ahead and do now is get you over to the trailer of my second featured review. Come in, my dear. I'm sorry to trouble you. I shouldn't have come at this hour. And for my second featured review is going to be Svengali from 1931. This is directed by Archie Mayo. It's from the novel written by George L. Dumarier. And then the screenplay and dialogue was written by J. Grubb Alexander. This stars John Barrymore, Marion Marsh, and Donald Crisp along with Bramwell Fletcher, Carmel Myers, Louise Alberni, Lumsden Hare, as well as Paul Porcasi. And then this is a drama, horror, romance, sci-fi film that is from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.8 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd. With our synopsis here being through hypnotism and telepathic mind control, a sinister music maestro controls the singing voice, but not the heart of the woman that he loves. Now, I'll be honest, this is a movie that I'm not sure when I first heard about it. It was one that I didn't see until now, and I do know that. The name sounds familiar, but then it could be getting mixed up for me with Sven Gulli, which I'm assuming is just a play on this title. Regardless, though, I didn't know much about this movie aside from reading a brief synopsis and seeing that it was from 1931, thanks to Letterboxd, when I was looking for movies for my Odyssey through the ones that we're doing here. So before I actually jump into this movie, what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is give you some notes on some of the key people here. The director of Mayo was behind 59 films. Of them, it appears the only one that I've seen is this one and is the only one that was a horror film. Then the writer of the screenplay and dialogue was Alexander, who has 34 credits. This is the only movie that I've seen so far, but he did write two other horror films. He did The Man Who Laughs from 1928 and then The Mad Genius, which also features Barrymore from the same year. The writer of the novel of Du Maurier had 11 adaptations of his work. Of them, this is the only one that went into the horror genre. Barrymore is, of course, Drew's grandfather, who you know did really create some royalty in film. He appeared in 63 movies. Of them, three are in the horror genre. I've seen his silent take from 1920 on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The other movie, as I've said, is from this year with Mad Genius, which I will be seeing soon. His co-star of Marsh was in 39 films. She only did two horror movies, and oddly enough, she paired up with Barrymore and Alexander as they are this movie and The Mad Genius. Then we finally have the actor of Crisp. He has appeared in 110 films total. Of them, four were in the horror genre. The first was in 1914 with D.W. Griffith's The Avenging Conscience, or Thou Shalt Not Kill. He followed it up with this movie here. And then in 1941, he was in a version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Then in 1944, he was in the movie called The Uninvited, which is, I'm not sure what that take is there. I know there's a few different movies with that same exact title, though. So we start this movie off with a sign that we learn that Svengali, who was portrayed by Barrymore, is a famous pianist. 
a Madame Horoni, portrayed by Myers, shows up, where she is stopped by his assistant of Gecko, portrayed by Elberny. Sofengali is listening from around the corner of a room as Gecko informs her that his maestro is composing and cannot be bothered. Svengali does come out to speak with her. She is there for a music lesson as she is a singer, but this woman here does reveal that she left her husband for Svengali. He is intrigued by this, but then clearly bothered when she did not take a settlement. Svengali then has her leave, and things get dark here as we learn that she killed herself soon after. So we see that he really was only, you know, feeding her some lines and telling her that he loved her because he was getting money from her husband to, for these lessons, and there was actually no real attraction there from what I gather. Now, Svengali goes to visit his friends who are from Scotland, I think, and there is Monsieur Taffy, who is portrayed by Hare, and then the Laird, who is portrayed by Crisp. Now, they live together. When they learn that Svengali arrives, they try to hide their money, and it is hard not to give him any, as he plays the piano so well. And actually, one of the men states that he has to hide his money because there's no way that he's going to be able to, you know, not give it over to him. Because once Svengali starts to play, it just kind of takes him over. And this duel also brings a bit of comedy to this movie. They decide to mess with him by forcing Svengali into the bathtub as he rarely bathes. And this also should be something I should point out here is that he's from Poland. And I believe they're all living in another city. I'm not, I think it might be Paris, but I could be wrong on that. Now, while he's in the tub, the two leave and go over to a friend on the hall of Billy, who is portrayed by Fletcher. Now, he's a painter from what we learn. Now, they went with him to gather a bunch of kids to show them that Svengali is in the bathtub as a prank, including taking his clothes. What they don't bank on is Svengali drying off and taking one of the Scots' finest suits, and it just so happens all of the money was hidden in the pocket there, and Svengali is kind of a scoundrel here where he kind of just games people and steals to do whatever he can just to make ends meet. Now, things all change when this woman of Tribly O'Farrell, portrayed by Marsh, comes to the apartment as well. She is a model for an artist upstairs, and they sent her down to this apartment because, of course, they know that Billy, I think, comes over here quite a bit, and this is a way for her to make a little extra money. Svengali falls in love with her immediately. He notices how her mouth is set up and that she could have a great singing voice. To complicate matters, though, Svengali isn't the only one who falls for her. Billy does as well, and she feels the same for him. Svengali comes to visit once again and sees the young lovers. Tribly is experiencing a headache, and he offers to help alleviate her pain. What she doesn't realize is that he's hypnotizing her, making her forget everything aside from him. He then hatches his plan to make her a star while he plays the piano, solving his money troubles. The problem really becomes, though, he can control her mind, but he cannot make her love him. His ability also takes its toll on his body. So that's why I want to leave my recap for this movie is I feel like if you've read any of my other reviews for movies from this era, they do tend to be lacking a bit in the story department. I just really want to preface here is that my recap of this movie went around halfway point. The story isn't really that important here because this is really more of a character study of this character of Svengali. Now, that is where I'm going to start my breakdown here. As Svengali, as I said, is a refugee from Poland. This is an interesting country to have this character from as... It has always been kind of volatile and really in a state of flux. It tended to be conquered quite a bit from places like Germany, Mongolia, becoming a commonwealth with Lithuania, and of course their issues with Russia. I love the influence of this on Svengali. He's a scavenger, and he's also a bit of a scoundrel in how he treats Madame Horoni and Trilby. What is shocking is that he's a talented pianist. So he has a way to make money, either teaching or just, you know, playing professionally. I'm wondering if his displaced lineage is a part of the reason here and just how his mentality is. Then there's this other part of Svengali in that he's trained in the ability to hypnotize people. We don't get much of that with Madame Hiroi, but I'm really glad that the movie doesn't give it away as of yet when we first meet her and see their interaction. It isn't until he does it to Trilby that we realize what he's capable of. Svengali is feeding lines to his first woman here who is paying him for lessons, when she messes this up by leaving her husband without a settlement, he's, she's outlasted her usefulness for him. I do like the lines he gives to Trilby to help alleviate her headache as well. So since I've already been talking about his abilities, I want to go to next to the effects. We don't get a lot of them, but this is again early cinema. What we do have to give credit to here is Svengali's eyes. 
I did see some trivia here that this is one of the first movies to use contacts. They're quite creepy, to be honest, because I'm pretty sure they're hard plastic, which probably didn't feel good, but I do love how far Barrymore was going to go with this character. And then going from this, the cinematography is also interesting. There's this great sequence where the camera pans to see Svengali with his contacts and then pulls back. It's impressive regardless of the time period, but even more that this movie is from 31. I think that the acting should be where I go next, and since this is a character study of Svengali, a good performance is needed. Barrymore does a great job as this character. I know I've seen him in a silent film of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so I'm just glad to see him here where he's actually able to talk. The look of him is creepy, and how well he plays this role is spot on. Marsh is cute, and I really enjoyed her character as well. It is interesting how things play out with her and the effect that she has on Svengali. Fletcher is solid as this young love interest who really just becomes a thorn in the side of Svengali. Crispin Hare also brings some comedy, which works well, and I'd say that overall the acting is pretty solid across the board. Then the last thing to go over would be the soundtrack. I'll be honest is that it didn't really stand out to me for the most part. I do think Madame Horoi and the short scene that she sings and Trilby and her performance was good. The piano music that Svengali fits what was needed for this movie. And then I'd also question if Barrymore is really playing or not. If he did, that gives me even more credit to this movie as well as to him. So that's all I really wanted to share for my recap and review. So really quickly, I'm just going to go through a couple bits of trivia here is that the pre-code film stirred controversy due to its nude modeling scene featuring a teenage Marsh. The actress wore a body stocking for the scene and in the long shot where she runs from the room, an older body double was used instead. Barrymore was 49 during filming, while the leading lady was only 17. Marsh did say that Barrymore was rather shy, and sometimes after a scene, everyone would applaud and he would just kind of back up to the wall. He was always so helpful and inspiring, and when you're the greatest, you have to try to come up to his level, and he knew what he was doing, and he did that many times before. Oddly enough, Fletcher would later marry John Barrymore's daughter of Diana Barrymore after Barrymore's death in 1942. The couple divorced in 46. Barrymore's nickname for Marsh was Maid Marian. According to her as well is that Barrymore was happily married to Dolores Costello at the time and was not drinking during the filming of Svengali. That's all I really wanted to share. The rest of them are kind of just a little bit long and I don't really think it kind of adds anything. But in conclusion here, I think this is an interesting movie. It feels similar to The Phantom of the Opera, but with this creepy looking Svengali using a different method to convince the young and beautiful Trilby. I think Barrymore's performance is great with Marsh and Fletcher bringing in an interesting dynamic alongside. The effects used on Svengali's eyes for his ability was solid and there is an interesting cinematography for early cinema in this movie. Soundtrack also worked for what was needed in my opinion. If I do have any issues, the movie is lacking a bit in the story, but again, this is early film in the grand scheme of you know the history of it. I would say that this is an above average movie though in my opinion and it would be one that I would consider seeing again now that I have. So my rating here for Svengali is going to be a 7 out of 10. And I'm not going to do a spoiler section because I don't really think there's anything that I needed to delve into a little bit deeper or anything like that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. How about three more chairs? I'm sorry, monsieur. That was the last one. But I will try to get you some opera glasses so you can see us Bengali. Uh-huh. You do that, Letty. Uh-huh. 
Okay, laddie. Did you forget me up a glass? No, monsieur. I'm sorry. They are all rented like everything else tonight. like to welcome you back one last time and then just to close everything out here for episode number 71 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast if you'd like to send me an email you can send that at journey with a cinephile at gmail.com you can send me any sort of feedback or anything you'd like there anything you'd like to have right on the show just go ahead and let me know and i will definitely do that if you'd like to read any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past episodes that's reviews of the dead and that's horrorreview.webnode.com if you'd like to become friends with me on Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's Buckeye from Mish. If you'd like to follow any of the reviews that I post on anywhere, you know, including anything I do on this one or any of the non-horror films, that is on Letterbox at David OSU. If you'd like to follow my Instagram, that is David OSU87. And then the Journey with a Cinephile also has an Instagram, which is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And I will have all those links in the show notes just to make it easier on you. And the last thing I would ask if you could do is that whatever podcasting device you're listening to me on, if you go ahead and hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode, as well if you're able to rate and review, that would also be greatly appreciated just so I can figure out what I'm doing that you like and what I'm doing that you don't like just to make this the best show possible. So now for the next one, I'm not sure what the new movie I'm going to pair up is going to be, but I'm going to do my second annual St. Paddy's Day episode where I'm going to have a 2021 film paired up with Leprechaun 3 as that is the next one in line that I have not actually done a you know watch with a critical eye and done a review for so that will be the reason that I'm gonna do you know Leprechaun 3 out of nowhere here and you know last year I did Leprechaun 2 of course and then what I'm also going to do is for the Odyssey through the ones film that I'm gonna watch I believe I'm gonna rewatch Gorgo since it's been a while I think that came out in 19 either 61 or 71 i probably should have looked it up but i do know it is one of the ones that fall into that i'm assuming it's 61 so i think that's all i really kind of wanted to get you up to date here with i will have some mini reviews uh, along with gorgo you know to do as well so what i'm gonna go ahead and say to do is that whatever you do today i hope you're safe in doing it and have a great time this is your tour guide of david garrett jr signing off it had been a wonderful evening and what i needed now to give it the perfect ending 